from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest for today's show is Larry Fultz, Executive Director of the Arizona Interfaith Movement. Reverend Fultz is no stranger to interfaith dialogues. He's been involved with the Arizona Interfaith Movement from its very beginnings in 1995. And prior to that, he served in ministry for many decades. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Our host, of course, is Rabbi Michael Bayo. CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. Hi, Rabbi. Good morning, Adrian. How are you? And uh, good morning, Reverend Fultz. Thank you so very much for joining us for another conversation with the Rabbi. Uh, We are excited to have you here, and I for sure look forward to have uh, this dialogue with you. Thank you. It's been a joy to be here and uh, meet you folk, and uh, I'm anticipating a great conversation. Why don't you start by giving us an introduction to the Arizona Interfaith Movement? I understand from the text on your website that this is an organization of over 22 different faith communities. But sometimes in the written description, the richness gets lost. Tell us about the Arizona Interfaith Movement, who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Yeah, in order to do that, we probably need to go back to 1995 and the history of our organization. Uh, Dr. Paul Eppinger was the executive director of the Ecumenical Council at that time, which is a Christian organization of many Christian churches. One of the gentlemen from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints asked to become a member of that organization. At that time, the uh, Christian community did not recognize them as a Christian organization and refused their membership. Some of us were quite concerned about that because uh, we felt that that was not correct uh, administration of our duties. And uh, so we thought of developing an interfaith organization of many faiths coming together. And uh, so we started with six faiths, Judaism, Islam, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, and Hinduism, and Baha'i. And uh, those were the faiths that we began with uh, just to begin to dialogue and to talk and to try to find common ground. It happened that the LDS representative was a man by the name of Darrell Anderson, and Darrell was a man who was big on the principle of the golden rule. And uh, uh, he wore suspenders that said, live the golden rule, and uh, uh, he was quite quite an interesting fellow. And At our first interfaith uh, forum or uh, experiencing interfaith, where we met together and we talked about our faith, he mentioned the fact that one of the things we have in common is the golden rule. And we began to explore that, never gave any thought about it, and began to explore it. And that has become our common ground, our common principle. Our real desire is to build bridges of understanding amongst diverse people of faith respect, and support. And so when one faith is being challenged, we come together because we see that as all of our faiths being challenged. So our, our role, uh, as we see ourselves, is that we know that behind many of the world's greatest challenges and conflicts is usually some kind of a religious misunderstanding. And so the bias and 
related issues that we deal with are the things that we try to explore and try to bring understanding and uh, purpose to it. Thank you very much, Reverend Fultz, for that description of, of your work and, and the reason behind that. I have been involved in uh, interfaith uh, dialogue for the past, uh, I would say, 10 years. Uh, so much less time and much less experience than you have had. And I have to say that I always approach this work with trepidation. <laughs> and every few months or every few years, I ask myself, is it worth? Mm -hmm. Are we actually achieving what we are supposed to achieve, what we meant to achieve? And let me explain to you my perplexity, even in the work that I do in my small part of the world in interfaith. It seems to me that more often than not, we are speaking to the choir. Mm -hmm. We are dialoguing. We are creating uh, commonalities among people that want to find those commonalities. Mm -hmm. And those people of all religions that are not interested in finding commonalities, they are never at the table. Right. So are we just an eco chamber that we are saying to ourselves, yes, we're doing a great job, kumbaya, <laughs> but then are we really affecting proper change, education to those who should really be at the table, but they don't want to be at the table? Please explain to me and teach me your ways. Oh, <laughs> masterful one. <laughs> oh, I wish you were so right. <laughs> uh, we are a movement, and it's like pushing mud uphill sometimes. Um, we, I recognize exactly what you're saying, because every morning I wake up and I think, okay, how can I make a difference today? Did I make any difference yesterday? Uh, there are people that will never come to the table. You're aware of that. And I'm aware of that. It's the fringe people that I have to really work with. Uh, it's the people that I know are are teetering and tottering. And, and those are the ones that I really need to find uh, a way to reach and touch and help them to try to find a way to join us to make a difference. Um, I, I, don't, I don't spend much time with those whom I know who've made it very vocal and have made it very clear that they're not going to be a part of this. They don't want any part of it. Um, and uh, as a result of that, uh, they're part of the problem, uh, unfortunately. But um, I do spend my time with uh, people who uh, are in places of power and position, such as legislators, governors, etc. For instance, uh, we have made our state a golden rule state. We're in the process of uh, uh, getting our 13th city to come in as a golden rule city. And we're in the process of getting our schools coming in as golden rule schools. We have a number of them that have come in as golden rule schools where they uh, take our uh, program that we have called Agree, that is uh, meets the standards of all the uh, state standards for education and teaches the golden rule in a non-religious uh, perspective. Uh, so... Th those are the ways in which we see uh, we make a difference. Now, here, here's the highlight reel. Uh, there are times when we have people come forward 
who talk about how it's made a difference in their life and how it's made a difference in their school, how it's made a difference in their city. Those are the things that keep us moving. Those are the things that keep us uh, rolling along and doing what we're doing. So um, is it a perfect world? Absolutely not. Uh, I wish it were, uh, Rabbi, but uh, we don't stop doing what we know is right just because there are others who disagree with us. One of the things that strikes me, having lived and worked in over 30 countries, having been exposed from a very young age uh, through travel and and time spent in, in other places, is that if you really take an honest look at who's causing problems and who's advocating solutions in, in almost anywhere, what you find is less that this is between X tradition and Y tradition. And what you find instead is that within every tradition, there are extremists and accommodationists. Yes, right. There are people spewing hateful rhetoric and people working for peace. Getting 22 religious communities around the table seems like it multiplies the problem in that every single one has to deal with themselves in their own communities of faith and practice with their intolerant, extreme folks. Mm-hmm. In other words, to kind of take another tack on Rabbi's first question, are we ignoring the real problem by getting the good people together? And how do the good people who come together address the hate and intolerance and extremism in their own individual communities of faith? A good question. And, and I think uh, one of the things is that... Um, you, you, you have to make it fashionable. <laughs> in our culture, when things become fashionable, everybody gets on the train. And so uh, uh, we have to help the the politicians. We have to help religious leaders. We have to help the, 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 the man in the pew. Uh, we have to help that person, those people, understand that it's not fashionable to be uh, uh, not uh, an interfaith person. And so it's little by little progress, as I say, it's like pushing mud uphill, but it's something we have to do. And uh, whether we don't always see what we want to see doesn't mean that we stop. Uh, but as I say, culture is changed by people who, who make things fashionable to be in, in the right, uh, uh, right place at the right time. You're saying that this is work that we have to do. Why? I mean, why? And I'll give you an example of of why my question even. I come from a religion and particularly from a tradition within my religion that says don't do interfaith. Don't legitimize those that don't believe that there is one God. Mm-hmm. Don't legitimize mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. those that even of our tradition are different than us. Now, I am different, so I chose to to split from the way that I was raised and in my background, and I do engage uh, and I do create a lot of interfaith programs. But you have so many Orthodox Jews, for example, that are against 
any form of interfaith or against even any form of intra-faith yeah, within right. the Jews, right? Yes, exactly. A case in point is, for example, in your organization, as far as I know, you do not have Orthodox Jews representing Judaism. You have conservative and reform uh, Jews representing Judaism, which leads me to two questions. Mm-hmm. One is, why should we engage in interfaith as, you know, there's many that don't want to, and maybe they're right. And second, do you feel that your organization represents well Judaism as an interfaith organization, even if you don't have representative of orthodoxy? Uh, no, and, and we don't represent anything. Uh, the people that are part of us are the representatives. Okay. And this is what I always tell our people. Be as strong in your faith as you can, because then we are as strong as you are strong in your faith. We are only as strong as you are in your faith. But to answer your first question is, we, we live in a different world today than um, uh, we lived 100 years ago. Uh, you wake up tomorrow morning and your neighbor is going to be somebody from a different part of the world with a different language. Uh, with a different uh, set of uh, rules and a different religion. Can I just interject that I wake up every morning hoping that that would actually be true? <laughs> but it turns out my neighbors are still the ones that I went to sleep with the night before. <laughs> and their dog still comes in your yard. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, Larry. Go ahead. No, that's great. But we, we cannot uh, continue to ignore the fact that that's a reality. So we believe that it's essential for um, a people to understand each other's faith and um, culture, ethnicity, in order to be able to live uh, in, a, in a world that's going to have some semblance of peace and, and uh, uh, hope uh, for the future. Uh, so you say, why do we do this? Why? Well, uh, to me, it's pretty simple because uh, uh, why does anybody work for peace when we know that there's so many <laughs> obstacles against peace uh, because it's the right thing to do. And uh, it's never wrong to do the right thing, uh, even how minimal it appears to be. Uh, you know, there was a word that came out several years ago. Uh, the word was tolerance. And so we'll just tolerate. And uh, I have, I have always said that Whatever we're willing to tolerate will never change. Uh, so if we're willing to tolerate uh, certain things that uh, are wrong, uh, we'll never change that. And so I don't use the word tolerance at all. I don't think it's a good term. I use the word respect. And I want to be able to respect you for your beliefs. Though I may disagree, I respect you. I'm, I'm a Baptist. We have 120 different Baptists. Why? Because we can't agree on anything, <laughs> so we we have our own we have our own in, intrafaith problem too. <laughs> so I, I completely agree with you that the word tolerance is problematic, and I also don't use it. Yeah, good. Uh, also, when I do my work or I do Holocaust education work, I, I never use the word tolerance. Uh, I can tolerate a pimple on my tuchus. I don't want to tolerate another human being. I want to respect. Absolutely. And uh, and give dignity to another human being. 
But the question that I, I have, and, and again, I'm asking this question not because I want to challenge you, but because Absolutely. these are the questions that I ask myself, <laughs> and not always I have good answers, is what should we do when you have uh, two or multiple faiths that in their faith, in their core faith, yeah. is against your faith? I understand. I've lived with it all my life in the Baptist world. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you do the same thing that you do with other people's faith. You know, you, you do the same. You respect them. You listen to them. You, you try to bring them. I, w I was having a conversation the other day, a private conversation the other day with Adrian. And I mentioned to Adrian that I don't do interfaith work with a representative of Christian faith that they tell me that their religious uh, goal or desire is that I convert and accept Jesus. Uh-huh, yeah. If somebody tells me, yes, if I had a magic wand, you, Michael, would accept Jesus as a savior, then I don't want to engage with that person because I feel that by stating that, they don't respect who I am. Yeah, yeah. And they actually would like me not to exist as a Jew. They would like me to exist as a Christian. And therefore, there cannot be any basis for a dialogue. But, but then tell me, please, am I wrong? Meaning, because in your position, I am sure there are some of the 20 plus faiths that maybe their theological basis is to disregard somebody else. So how do you work with that? We do not allow any pleasure. We do, I mean, we do not allow any proselyting, for one thing. That is the number one rule in our organization. We do not allow that, number one. Uh, number two, I approach it, and to say you're right or wrong, I would never do that. Uh, that's you leave that's that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's something to your own conscience, and I, uh, I can try to persuade. But um, I, you know, to me, I take it as a um, a plus thing if somebody says to me they would like for me to become part of their faith. I, I say, bravo to you for thinking that your faith is that wonderful. Bravo to you. I, I don't get problematic with that at all, but. Um, uh, because I guess of who I am and where I'm at in my life, um, I'm 81 years old. I've been there. I've seen it. Um, <laughs> I, re I know who I am and what I want to be. But I respect those who are zealous about their faith and zealous enough to love me enough that they believe that they would love for me to be a part of that faith. So that's the approach that I take with it. I don't take it as an affront. Uh, that they disrespect me. I just take it as a uh, plus sign that they are very zealous for their faith, and I accept that and I respect it. Yeah, maybe our two different ways is also part of our historical DNA. Yes, exactly. That uh, as a Jew, we had to confront forced uh, conversions, and maybe that is partially why in in my DNA, so to speak, yeah. I feel that way, but maybe not. Maybe it's just me. 
I would remind you, Rabbi, of one of the things you also said to me in another conversation, which I think illuminates something about this, which is you say, Adrian, we have become friends. We respect each other. We have such different points of view on many core issues, but I enjoy talking to you and I'm learning from you and you from me and, and, and so on. And I would like to say that that appreciation for you means I would be okay if you had a daughter, yeah. that my son would marry your daughter. And I'm not okay with that because if I was okay with that, it would mean the end of my people. Right. Yeah. In other words, your primary concern, Michael, if I can represent what I've taken from these things. Yeah, yeah, please. Is a vigilance for anything, whether it's rhetoric or action. Yeah. That if played out to its extreme would mean the end of the Jewish people as the Jewish people. 100%. So whether that's conversion yeah. or marriage or any other thing, that's, I just wanted to add, I've, I've picked that up in these conversations. 100%, you could not be more correct. And let me just uh, tell you something that happened to me a few years ago um, when I became the uh, chaplain uh, for Jewish students at Boston University and uh, the executive director for Boston University Hillel. Hillel, as you know, is an organization on campus that is open to all Jews, any student, regardless of their faith, lack of faith, political association. And we're open to everybody, even non-Jewish students can participate at Hillel's uh, programs and events on campus. So while I was being interviewed, in my interview process, I also interviewed with the student leaders. And I remember they asked me if I, as an Orthodox rabbi, would work differently with Orthodox students or non-Orthodox students. Would I have a preference mm -hmm. with one over the other? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or would I have a pre or, or, or I, how would I, and I, this was the question, how would I treat a reform student whose mother is not Jewish? father is Jewish. So according to orthodoxy, that student is not Jewish. But according to reform Judaism, that student is Jewish. How would I interact with that student? So I remember my answer very clear. And I was actually proud of my answer. And I said, if I am at this position at Hillel, every person that self-identifies as a Jew, mm -hmm and is accepted by the, uh, by the major um, denomination as a Jew, is a Jew, period. No question asked. Mm -hmm. A different question is if when my son is uh, uh, 25 years old and comes home and tells me, uh, Papa, I want to marry a non-Jewish girl, that is a private matter between me, my son, his girlfriend, my wife, and we'll sit around the table and we'll figure that out as a family. That's a private matter. Nothing to do how I will engage with a student at Hillel. And that's uh, similar to what I do here at the JCC. We treat everybody equally. We are open to everybody, whether you believe, whether you don't believe. We don't ask. I don't care. Differently is how I, what is my belief and what I teach my kids at home. So yes, I, on a personal, private level, I want my kids to marry Jewish girls. Yeah. But that does not mean that I don't like you or don't respect you or don't want to be friends with you. 
Absolutely. And I understand that entirely. Let me give you a real life scenario. I'm a Baptist. I wanted my daughter to grow up to marry a Baptist boy. She came home one day and said, I'm in love with a Jewish boy. Not everybody's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have embraced him and he's a beautiful part of our family. Right. I couldn't be happy for a wonderful son-in-law. He's a fabulous young man and we love him dearly. They've given us two great grandchildren and, um, They go between the Baptist church and the Jewish synagogue, and they're happy and we're happy. But now let me ask you a question, Rabbi. It's my understanding of the uh, Jewish Bible. uh, There is an Abrahamic covenant and a Davidic covenant that have promised the seed of those to continue on forever and ever. How is it that you're concerned that they would, the marriage would uh, wipe out the Jewish nation? It's a good question. Um, uh, it's not a challenge. It's just I'm I'm clear. No, 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 no. It's a good, it's a, it's a good question. Period. Yeah. And I don't take it as a challenge. And I'll nobody's ever asked me this question, so I'm glad that you did. So it will uh, give me the opportunity to think about it and and answer you yeah. to the best. It it may give you some perspective in terms of hope. Yeah. That that would not happen. Yeah. So first of all, I'll start with a joke or a semi joke. There is a saying out there that we Jews are the chosen people. Right. You have no idea how many times I have prayed to God to please, for a period of time, choose somebody else. (laughs) Because if being the chosen people means to go through what Jews have gone through, at least in the last 2,000 years, do me a favor, choose somebody else. It doesn't have to be forever, (laughs) but for a few thousands of years, or hundreds of years, do me a favor, choose somebody else. That's just as a as a joke yeah, that I I understand <laughs> that though. It's a great that's a great uh, you know great just truth. choose somebody whatever. Yeah. But as Adrian correctly described, uh, my passion is the Jewish people, mm-hmm. and everything that I do is to continue the Jewish people. Yeah. Yes, there is a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with David. But then we have freedom of choice. Yes, we do. So if uh, all the Jews today were to decide not to continue their connection with Judaism, Judaism would die. Mm. Of course. Same is true with uh, my faith. And the same is true with any tradition. Right. So I need to do what I need to do from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. And I let God do what God needs to do from his, his, her, it perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't claim to know God's uh, understanding and uh, I do what I think I need to do. If we look statistics, even the latest uh, Pew reports that came out about Jewish population in America, Jewish population in the world, unfortunately, we see a huge decline in Jewish self-commitment and affiliation with the Jewish people among conservative and reform uh, denominations. Mm -hmm. The only place where we see growth is in the Orthodox Mm. denomination. Mm. That denomination is growing both because of internal growth, because of having more kids on average, than the conservative and reform families, but also because their commitment to Judaism is different. I'm not saying better, I'm not saying worse, but it's different mm-hmm. than the commitment of conservative and reform Jews. 
we see so many reform and conservative Jews that their children or grandchildren don't care. They've become the nuns. Yeah. They, they don't care anymore. They're the nuns, yes. They're the nuns. And that happens, that is happening in many traditions. Oh, my, yes. And for sure, it's happening in Judaism. And they, they just don't care. We, as religious leaders, we messed up that we are losing them. And there isn't yet found the magic wand that and a magic solution, how to bring them back. Nobody has that yet. And so if we project this for the next 50, 100 years, you will have less total number of Jewish people in America. And those that will still identify as Jews will be predominantly Orthodox. But that's, that, that, that's sad. Yeah. That's sad that so many people are choosing not to identify anymore with our tradition that it's thousands and thousands of years long. And it's one of the most wonderful and beautiful tradition and history in, in, in humankind. Yeah. So it's, that's very sad. If it's any consolation to you, Rabbi, um, and probably won't be because it's none to us, it's happening in my faith. It's happening in all faiths. Oh, for sure. Faith is becoming a, uh, uh, more people are becoming nuns, as you said, yes. Yeah. And so just to end this thought, therefore, I want to do everything that I can, both in my private life and in my work and in my public life, to strengthen the connection with Judaism from all walks of life. Yes, absolutely. And that is what really keeps me up at night. I hear you. <laughs> now, let me weigh in on this because I think this, first of all, affects me directly. I am someone who would check the nun box. Right. And it's very clear the demographic trends that you've both addressed. That Pew study, for example, showed that 50 years ago, 5% of Americans claimed they were non-religious. It's grown to 23% or more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, what's the place for engaging with the secular folks in an interfaith forum? Oh, we do. If you only keep talking to believers, but borrowing in some ways, I would assert, some of the humanistic values and so on, which you might find floating around and being called secular values. I'm a particularly problematic person in that regard because I'm an anti-humanist, but that's a philosophical point we could discuss another time. Where does secularism fit into an interfaith framework? Do they have a seat at the table? How does that play out? Glad you asked, Adrian, because we have atheists, we have humanists, we have secularists, we have Native Americans. Uh, we have all of the above who participate and become a part of us because they have that common ground of the golden rule the principle of treating each other with respect and dignity. They want that in their life to be respected. We have Wiccan. So they, they want that respect. And they found an organization that gives them that respect and will advance their thought of their own discipline and uh, the right to determine their own destiny. And so as a result of that, they love our organization. Do you have anyone from the Church of Satan? The Church of Satan? We have not. We have not had anyone from them. I don't know a lot about it, by the way. I grew up listening to heavy metal and enjoying heavy music and so on. So that's his problem, Rabbi. <laughs> but I am struck by the fact that so-called Satanists, well, they freak a lot of Christians out. 
are actually really just humanists yeah. who like growing their hair long and freaking Christians out. Yeah. There's a core of ethics and morality, which is probably lost. And I think they love that. Here is our measure. We go by the IRS standards. And if you meet the IRS standards as a nonprofit, 501c3, religious organization or non-religious organization, you can be a part of us. Makes sense. We have not been approached by Satanists. So more, more than an interfaith organization is an interpeople organization. Oh, beautiful. I love it. Because as Adrian uh, rightly mentioned, if you accept atheist and secularist and humanist, then maybe it's not interfaith anymore. It's intrapeople, intracultural. Although they see themselves, humanists would see themselves. Help me out, Adrian. Uh, but I think they would see themselves as a religious organization. The Satanists or the humanists? No, the humanists. Probably not. I guess it depends on which ones you're talking to. I think there's another dynamic here. Go ahead. I've spoken to them on several occasions in their meetings and so forth, and they meet on a regular basis, which is one of the requirements. Uh, they have their own uh, uh, ministers, uh, people who uh, talk about the humanist program. So, you know, from the perspective of what the IRS says, they would consider themselves a religion. Yeah, fair enough. It gets into this question at some point, I guess, of what the boundaries of the distinction are. Does it apply to any values-based, not-for-profit organization, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera? No, it has to meet the religious requirements that they have, the 501c3. I understand. Here's a dynamic that I find also interesting and I think we should talk about, and that is the rise of the nons, the non-religiously identified, is playing out very differently depending on where in the world one looks. And the same Pew research that tells us that on average, most people would agree that a belief in God is necessary for moral and ethical actions in the world. It's 5149 or something like that. But if you actually dig in and you look closer, you realize this is not the same in the developed countries and in, in the developing countries. If you're talking about the US, Canada, and Europe, the vast majority of people would tell you that a belief in God is not required to be a moral person. If you're looking in Indonesia, the Philippines, India, et cetera, et cetera, you find that the vast majority of people will say that, yes, a belief in God is necessary to be a moral person. Right. So I don't want secularism to be taken as some sort of vague universal that's the same everywhere. It's clearly not. And yet these secular values which I'm not sure what they are, to be quite honest. I think at some level, it's be a good person and do no harm. If that's the only commonality, doesn't the interfaith dialogue then participate in the erasing of the difference that makes each community unique? In other words, how do you strike that balance between the things you have in common and the things that are different so that focusing on the golden rule, for example, doesn't just erase the differences, which are what makes each community what it is? How do you keep the separation at the same time as you find the unity? Well, it's a work in progress, to be sure. I think one of the things that um, there is still uh, in the heart of every individual, I think the desire to know eternity. What is there? And so when secularism cannot provide that answer, at some point in time, there is a turn to the religious community to find an answer. That, to me, is, is the one hope, one of the hopes that I have, that as we grow older in our life, and what you're referring to, Adrian, is a group of young people 
a generation, and each generation has to find their own definition of God. And I think that as that generation begins to grow older and begin to think about eternal things, last things, that's when they turn to the religious institutions to find some answers. That's my hope. I'm curious about your backstory, Reverend, because you at some point embraced interfaith dialogue, participation, collaboration, and so on as the way forward. Was it clear if we were to go back in time to a young theology student, divinity student, that this is where you're going to end up? Or did you have a turning point in your own thinking? Oh, absolutely not. I, I was uh, uh, the antithesis to all of what I am today, I think, in terms of uh, our studies. But life has a way of bringing about lessons that theology schools and seminaries can't teach you. And I think the, the turning point in my life was when Darrell Anderson was turned away from the Christian community. And I realized that here's a group of people who hold a lot in common with what we believe as Christians, but are being put away, cast away from my Christian community. And that was a turning point for me. And I began to realize there's something wrong here and I need to investigate more. And I was one of those who really started the Arizona Interfaith Movement. I was one of the six. Reverend, you mentioned that uh, when people get older, they quest for the infinite, for lasting things. And, and, and you mentioned that it's your hope that that will happen also maybe to the none of this, this generation when they will grow older. Yeah, and I think it will. That's sad to think that religion can only be for older people. <laughs> yes, it is. It is sad. It is sad that, but it, it, it speaks to two things. It speaks to how we have been non-relevant in terms of our faith to the present generation. And it speaks to the fact that uh, we have not done a very, very good job in helping that generation explain God and explain um, the religious part of their life. There's a religious part of everybody's life, whether they like to admit it or not. There is. And somewhere, somehow, it comes out. And I believe it will. But yes, you're right. It's an indictment against us as a religious organizations, unfortunately. We started by saying that religions often are at primordial core for many conflicts. And I presume that one of the reasons that you are engaged in interfaith is in order to dissipate those conflicts. Absolutely. That's the whole purpose of what we do is to dispel misunderstandings and myths. And we do that in a number of ways. We have a, what we call experience interfaith. And you've been there, you've seen us, uh, where we bring all faiths together. We have a table, a faith fair, where people can uh, get religious literature and just ask questions of people who themselves are practitioners of that faith or clergy of that faith. And then we have a meal, a common meal, where we take our shoes off and we sit down and the Sikh community uh, from India feeds us a meal. And then we get, uh, we, we get up and we sit in a circle of 10 and we discuss our faith. It's a safe, free zone where you can talk about your faith in any way you want to talk about it. You can answer the questions and you can be very open and honest uh, and about your faith. 
So that's one of the ways in which we try to dispel the myths, the misunderstandings that, uh, and the people that come really, really enjoy it and find a lot of help in terms of that. One of the great challenges that we have, one of the beautiful things that we have, we have a lot of uh, college students, a lot of university students that come and uh, the sick community is there and they're, they're, uh, they're tying turbans on their heads and uh, the Jewish uh, community is there teaching them how to blow the shofar. And there's just a lot of wonderful things that happen at this event that young people would never experience any other, any other way. And uh, so in terms of trying to deal with the nuns, uh, we have uh, interfaith movements uh, in the universities on the college campuses at Arizona University at University of Arizona, and we have some clubs in the high schools. So we're trying to teach young people um, what it means to be respectful and have interfaith dialogue. And it's working. We enjoy it. And uh, uh, But uh, yes, that's the whole purpose of what we're trying to do. Another way in which we do it is we have faith forums. And we'll take a topic, uh, an interesting topic, for instance, of of the day that's related to uh, the news. And we'll have four or five panelists who'll discuss that topic in relationship to their own faith so that people can understand how somebody thinks about some social issue or political issue from the perspective of Judaism or from Islam or Christianity or Hinduism, uh, Hare Krishna, so forth. One of the things that unites folks advocating for the importance of religion in contemporary life is service. It's one thing to talk about your faith, and it's another to put it to work, whether it's serving a meal or serving in a community, picking up the trash, engaging in a prison ministry, whatever whatever form it takes. And I think there's no question that many people, whether religious or secular, would agree that service can play an important role in opening the eyes, the hearts, the minds to the realities of our world, which are so often obscured by the sources of information people consume on a daily basis. Just simply getting out of your comfort zone, going somewhere and doing something. As we close the conversation, share a little bit about this idea of service and how it plays out in your organization and for your members. Service is one of the things in which we uh, use as our dialogue, service, and implementation of the Golden Rule to uh, complete our mission. Service has been a very difficult thing because most of our people are involved in their own faith, in different kind of service uh, activities. Uh, We've tried to do something once a year in terms of a service. Uh, We built a home for Habitat for Humanity uh, one year uh, Uh, We're doing some homes in Mexico now. Uh, There are some ways in which we do it as an organization, but it's very difficult because it does require a strenuous amount of time. And uh, we like to encourage our people to be active in their own faith in the kinds of service activities that they're doing. Uh, uh, We do have a young squad, a young people squad, and uh, we do go over to... uh, um, the LDS center where they pack food boxes and so forth. Uh, once a year, we try to do that. But the service is a very difficult thing for us because of the 
uh, as I said, the, the fact that our people are very active and we encourage them to be active in their own service projects within their own faith. Larry Fultz is executive director of the Arizona Interfaith Movement. He's been involved with the organization since its very beginnings in 1995 and continues to the present day, bringing folks together to discuss, to engage, to eat together, to share, and to learn from each other. Reverend Fultz, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.